0: Welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J Sheen For over fifty years Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining us here at Radio Maria Canada, your Catholic voice wherever you are. And uh, Bishop Sheen's going to continue to talk about marriage. And uh, we had a great program last week uh, talking about uh, tensions in marriage and marriage, of course, uh, through the catechism lessons. But uh, today, Bishop Sheen's going to talk about the value of incompatibility and also uh, talk about marriage as a sacrament. So uh, we're still on the marriage theme, and uh, we're still going to learn a great deal today. And so let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Please enjoy now this reflection from the television series Life is Worth Living from the 1950s, entitled The Value of Incompatibility. May I present to you the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
1: Friends, it is evident from the night's title that it has something to do with marriage. And before speaking of incompatibility... Some very nice compatibles. President Harding was once asked at what age he thought that a woman was most beautiful. His answer was, the age of my wife. And I think that the most beautiful toast that I ever heard to a wife from a husband was the following. It was a wedding anniversary. And the husband stood up to toast his wife. You must wait for the end of the sentence in this because you could be shocked when it's halfway through. (laughs) And he toasted his wife saying, here's to a face that would stop a clock. And bid all time stand still that we might contemplate her beauty. then on the other hand there are those who say that women are to blame for everything that happens that's one of the old complaints one day adam was out walking with cain and abel on either side of him they passed the wreck and row into the beautiful garden of paradise and adam pulled the boys to himself and gestured in and said boys that's where your mother ate us out of house and home Then there are those who say it's the husband. I know of a woman who went to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said to her, are you absolutely sure that you can tell whether or not your husband is lying simply by looking at his face? And she said, yes, if his lips are moving, I can. (laughs) There was an advertisement that appeared in a Pennsylvania newspaper for sale in Encyclopedia Britannica reason for selling, my wife knows everything. (laughs) Now, there are various kinds of incompatibilities. First of all, it is too often assumed there shouldn't be any in the individual life and in the social life. There's an assumption abroad among so many that, well, if we suffer of many kinds of tension, we're abnormal. No, we're not abnormal if we have certain tensions. It's part of our fallen human nature. We're just built that way. For example, a tension between body and soul. They have different landing fields, different kinds of pleasures. And then there's also in every individual a tension between what he is and what he ought to be. Between his existence and his ideals. There's another kind of tension also between the fact that he lives and deals with things that are cabined and quid, confined, and yet, on the other hand, he's striving for the infinite. He has his feet in the mud, and he has his wings and his thoughts and the stars. And so it is with married life. Divorces are granted for incompatibility. Was there ever in the world a perfectly compatible couple? Certainly there are incompatibilities. I'm going to mention just a few of them in the social order. That is to say, in the order of marriage, one tension, which is very normal, is the tension between... The courtship and the marriage. In the courtship, there's always an emphasis upon things that are held in common. We like the same things. We both like filter cigarettes. We both buy brand X. And then afterwards, the differences begin to appear. Tension is developed in talk. Before marriage, there's considerable talk and conversation. Afterwards, there can be a great deal of silence. A man generally courts by a kind of braggadocio. He talks about himself. And a woman courts by listening. I heard one say that she could listen faster than any man could talk. <laughs> so she allows the man to expand his ego. And then afterwards, there come great silence. Not many things that are held in common. He comes home and he said, I just got a $50,000 contract today. And she says, How do you want your eggs? (laughs) (laughs) These differences between the before and the after I think could be illustrated. I wish I could draw. And perhaps somebody could make a cartoon of this someday. First of all, in the beginning, it almost seems as if there's a dual drive in an automobile. They're close together, like a brother and sister that just love one another. Then, in the front seat, she sits over here after a while, and he sits over here. Then, He's in the front seat, she's in the back seat. (laughs) Then, he's got his automobile, and she's got hers. Another is a tension of sex and love. Sex can be concerned and is concerned only with the function of a person. But love is concerned only with a person. This is very strange that the only passion and emotion that man has in which he separates a function from a person is this one. For example, if someone steals from you, you do not say, if he's a pickpocket, I hate his hand. Someone lies about you, you do not say, I hate his tongue. There is always in every other emotion the person involved. Here there can be a separation. Which is not good. One should love only the person. But tensions of this kind are perfectly normal. They're a part of human existence. Now the question is... How to resolve them. Because after all, a man meets a dimple and he marries a woman. or Every woman uh, marries a man and then she lives with a husband. Now the problem is, how reconcile these differences and contrasts and tensions? There are two ways of doing it. And this is the first. The only way that one can ever escape from mediocrity, from a barrenness in love and affection, is by some kind of sacrifice or self-denial. Love never mounts to a higher level without a death to a lower one. There are some, for example, who think that love is like this—it's the kind of an ascension, a great progress. It's never ending. That is too optimistic a view. Then there are those who take the opposite view. And who hold that love is like this. One is bound to become discouraged and displeased and finally abandon the other. Now that idea is very much perpetuated in popular songs and also in much humor. Have you ever noticed that almost all love songs are about the future? A man sings to a woman, tells her how he will love her, what he will do. I'll bake a cake for you to take for all the boys to see. (laughs) Well, first of all, she never bakes a cake. She buys it. Secondly, he wouldn't take it to the office. But it's all in the future. Did you ever hear of any songwriter who said, five years ago, you promised you'd bake a cake for me to take for all the boys to see? And I took it? (laughs) That kind of song does perpetuate this impression that love is nothing but a descent. Actually, Married love is a kind of a balance between the two. We say it's a kind of a life of ups and downs, moments of exaltation, moments of depression. But we still have not answered the question as to how to bring it to a higher level. This is the answer. It goes to a higher level through a sacrifice. Here we're going to put, each one of these stands for a crisis, kind of a difficulty in marriage, and we're going to signify the sacrifice or the self-denial by a cross. Marriage will go along in this dull, drab line or else be nothing but troughs and swells Unless every now and then there comes a moment where the ego is crushed. There has to be the unfolding of a mystery. Then there's something noble. For example, there may be an unfolding of a mystery and a new sacrifice when the child is born. Egotism has to be crushed in the husband and wife. The new life demands some kind of surrender. Then there's unveiled The mystery that never before was seen. The mystery of fatherhood and motherhood. And later on, there comes another. which is the education of the children, the training them along moral and religious lines. And here a new mystery in each is manifested, namely what might be called mother craft and father craft. Married love of this kind is not just an ascension really, but it's a series of breaks In which one does does prove that the only truly progressive thing in all the world is love nothing else progresses like it but it feeds on only one kind of food the crushing of the ego the beginning of the living for another that's the happiness of Now, this law that I've given here actually applies to all kinds of love. I'm speaking about married love. It applies to spiritual love just as well. Take, for example, anyone like myself. We're dedicated to God. We can become mediocre, too. Yes, when we first begin, we can think that Oh, yes, sanctity and holiness is going to be very easy. Or we may fall into the error of believing that, well, we'll just let ourselves go. Or we may fall into, into moments of great zeal and then of barrenness. Or our lives may be mediocre, neither hot nor cold, which God said he would vomit us out of his mouth. How is it that we get out of this trough of ordinariness? Exactly the same way. By the crushing of the ego. But most people in married life do not live together long enough to prove this law. We have to prove it in ourselves. And what makes the saint is the one who's willing at each and every crisis of his life to make some act of self-denial. Then love truly is an ascension. Both the love of man for woman and the love of a soul for God. That's the first way. The second way of relieving attention is by, oh, the richer helping the poorer, the stronger helping the weaker. There is such a thing as an infusion. Just as in the physical order, if I were suffering from anemia, doctors would grafts would uh, not graft skin, but they would give me blood from a healthy member of society to cure me of that condition. Now it is possible, for to have an infusion between husband and wife. Obviously, there is the physical communication, of which we need not speak because that is very obvious. But then there is a mental kind of influence of the husband on the wife or the wife on the husband. This takes place Maybe when a wife would lead a husband away from alcoholism, agnosticism, infidelity, whatever you please. One of the beautiful examples of this mental influence is to be found in the life of G.K. Chesterton, the famous English essayist. He wrote about his wife, Frances, who had lifted him from doubt and agnosticism to faith? He said, "I burn four lamps of thanksgiving before her shrine. First, because I was made from the same earth as she was. Secondly, because, despite all my faults, I've never gone after false women, strange women. And thirdly, I will love every flower and bird and every sunset and every star." There's a preparation for loving her. And fourthly, my life begins to be now. Simply because she's opened a new door for me. Not only in that sublime way with her, was there an influence, but even in the little things of life, Chesterton was absent minded, like many learned men. And he sent a telegram to his wife once from Manchester, and he said to her, I'm in Manchester, where ought I be? <laughs> then there's another kind of influence which is the most important of all and that is what might be called a spiritual infusion. St Paul speaks of that he says the believing wife sanctifies the unbelieving husband the unbelieving hu- the believing husband sanctifies the unbelieving wife in other words the faith the goodness the virtue will pass from one to the other. If the husband were sick of pneumonia, would the wife walk out? Well, he may have moral pneumonia. Should she abandon him? Should she not nurse him spiritually? And this is the spiritual contact of which Paul speaks, and a beautiful example of that is in the case of Dr. Le who was a very famous doctor of Paris at the turn of the century, and he married just an ordinarily good religious woman. And Dr. Le was not only interested in medicine, he was also the editor of an atheistic uh, newspaper of Paris, to which he devoted most of his time. And in 1905, his wife was taken sick, and she tossed on a bed of pain from 1905 to 1914 in the month of May, when she died and she said to her husband when she was dying Felix when I am dead you will become a Dominican priest he said Elizabeth you know my sentiments I've sworn hatred of things religious I shall live in atheism I shall die in it and she repeated her words and passed away And then rummaging in her diary, he found her last will and testament. She said in 1905, I asked Almighty God to send me sufficient sufferings to purchase your soul. And on the day that I die, I shall have paid the price. My goodness, my sufferings, my prayers will all have passed into you greater love than this no woman hath, that she lay down her life for her husband. He went to Lourdes. He had written a book against it once. There he received the gift of faith in all of its fullness. And when he went to Rome, Benedict XV, the 15th, and then the reigning pontiff, was told by Dr. Lecure that he was going to become a Dominican priest. Well, in Lent, 1924, I made my retreat in the Dominican monastery in Belgium, where 45 minutes each time and four times a day, I made my retreat under and received the spiritual direction of Father Lasser, who told me this story. And I tell you that it's not often that you can make a retreat under a priest who will every now and then preface his remarks by saying as my wife, Elizabeth, has said. (laughs) And so there are incompatibilities, but there must be. Yes, the chase, in a certain sense, takes away the thrill of the capture, but there ought to be a way in which we can have both, and there actually is, and that is heaven, when we capture perfect love. Then we will need an infinity of chase in order to enjoy the eternity of the capture of that passionless passion and wild tranquility which is love divine. Thank you. Bye now and God
0: love you. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series Life is Worth Living The web address is www.bishopsheen.com You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality Mary the Mother of God angels Catholic Holy Days and other faith-based subjects So call toll-free today 1-866-357-4336. one eight six six three five seven four three three six 357 4336 Again, one eight six six three five seven four three three six 357 4336 And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program... Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living here on Radio Maria Canada. I hope you've been enjoying these reflections on marriage over the last two weeks, and uh, we will now finish up with a catechism lesson uh, entitled Marriage as a Sacrament. And so I would ask you to sit back and relax and enjoy the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
1: Peace be to you. Before speaking of marriage as a sacrament, it is important to show that in the natural order, the human order, that is to say, in the order apart from grace, marriage is an unbreakable bond until death parts. This was affirmed by our blessed Lord. The Pharisees came to him on one occasion and asked if it was right for any man to put away his wife for any cause whatsoever. Our blessed Lord answered, Have you never read how he created them when they first came to be? Created them male and female. And how he said, A man, therefore, will leave his father and mother and will cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, and so they are no longer two, they are one flesh. What God then has joined, let no man put asunder." It is to be remarked that in these words of our blessed Lord, he was speaking of marriage from the beginning. And When, therefore, the question of divorce arose, our blessed Lord said, and I tell you that he who puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he too commits adultery who marries her after she has been put away. These words sound like a great judgment upon a civilization such as ours, where there is one divorce for every four marriages and many consequent remarriages after such divorces. It must therefore not be thought that divorces and remarriages are wrong for Catholics only. They are indeed especially wrong for Catholics. But they are a violation of the law of God, the natural law of God, by every, whether he be Tibetan or Muslim or Hottentot or a so-called Christian. Original sin and the deluge. Did not blot out the divinely established order of man and woman. Conjugal love conquered both the deluge and original sin and survived both. And we will see later on, how our blessed Lord is going to lift it up into the supernatural order. We are interested for the moment only in the human natural order. And the point is that it was instituted that is to say, marriage, not by man, but by God. He made it a union, not a contract. By it, two persons become one. They become spiritually, mentally, and physically united. Certainly there are judges that will grant divorces, But, how does God look upon them? After the divorce, they are not two separate individuals as they were before the marriage. They are fragments of a joint personality. Like a babe that has been cut in two. That is the way God looks upon any divorce. Regardless of who the person be. Now, from another point of view, this marriage of man and woman is meant to be an enduring marriage of the very nature of love. There are only two words in the vocabulary of love. You and always. You because love is unique. Always because love is enduring. No one ever said I will love you for two years and six months. That is why all the love songs have the ring of eternity about them, such as till the sands of the desert grow cold. Why is there jealousy in the human heart if jealousy be not the safeguard of monogamy and an enduring marriage? Consider a little more closely the nature of love, even in the human order. There are actually three terms. There is the lover, there is the beloved, and there is love. And the love is something distinct from both man and woman, and yet in both. Suppose love had only two terms my love and thy love. There would be separateness, impenetrability. There has to be a third acting element. Just as two vines, if they are to be one, must be united in the soil. And so too, two hearts are united because of the love that is outside both then the impotence of the I to completely possess the thou is overcome by the realization that there is something outside of both hovering over, turning the I and the thou into our love. And that is why people who are in love always speak of our love. Though they may not put their love in these words, this is practically what they're saying one to another Thou art more than thou alone. And my love no longer founders on thee because it reaches out beyond thee to all that is worth loving. When we embrace, we embrace more than one another. In embracing one another, we give testimony of that by which we are embraced. Namely, by the love of God. God gave to man a helpmate. As the book of Genesis put it, man and woman, both he created them. Now notice how he made them to complement one another. Never once admitting any such thing as a separation. Man is made by God, and woman is made by God from man. As God is present at the creation of the world, so man is present, though in ecstasy or sleep, at the creation of a woman. Because man comes directly from God, he has more initiative, power, and creativeness. Woman, however, coming from God through the ecstasy of man, has intuition, response, acceptance, submission cooperation. Man lives more in the external world because he was made from dust. He is close to nature. It is man's mission to rule over it and subject it. But a woman lives more in the internal order because she was created from an inner human life. Man is more interested in the outer world and woman in the inner world. That is why man talks more about business and woman talks more about persons. They complement one another in a divine way. So when God made them, the book of Genesis puts it, it is not well that man should be without companionship. I will give him a mate of his own kind. The divine creation, therefore, of the two sexes is suggested as essential from the point of view of fellowship. A helpmate does not mean inferiority but differences that complement one another like a bow and a violin. Therefore, you see, marriage is not just a contract. It is a union. And a union that has been made by God. And a union that endures until death. Here we are limiting ourselves to the human order. You know very well from this encyclopedia of Catholic knowledge so far that there is not only a natural order, there is also a supernatural order. We live not only in the order of the human, but we can also live in the order of the divine. In addition to physical life, there is biological, or rather supernatural life, which is grace. And grace is that participation in the divine nature by which our intellects are illumined with faith and our wills are strengthened with power. Our blessed Lord, coming to this earth, bringing divine life, being the source of grace through his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, makes marriage a sacrament. That is to say now, to those who are united in his church, he gives them the grace, the strength, the power to live out their mutual existences being a sacrament it has two elements just like every other sacrament one is very visible and evident it is the exchange of consent which is signified not only by the joining of hands but also by the words of consent and this is witnessed by a priest There is the invisible grace, also, which is communicated for their married state. And because this grace symbolizes another marriage, the marriage of Christ and his Church, that is the meaning of sacramental marriage. This needs considerable explanation. You'll find it written all through the epistles of St. Paul, Uh, For example, here we quote uh, Paul. It is unheard of that a man should bear ill will to his own flesh and blood. No, he keeps it fed and warmed. So it is with Christ and his church. The two will become one flesh. Yes, these words are a high mystery. I am applying them here to Christ and the church. And he says in another place, husbands, love your wives. Now how? As Christ loves the church. We come here to a very profound reason. As St. Paul calls it, as you see, a high mystery. a reason why the marriage of baptized persons in the church signifies another marriage. Well, all through the Old Testament and in the New, God expresses his relationship with man in terms of nuptials. In the Old Testament, God always spoke of himself as the bridegroom, as the husband of Israel, which was the Kahal. So Israel or the chosen people, or the kahal, was considered by God in the Old Testament as the bride of God. If we had time, we would give you many, many passages in the Old Testament to show how God could find no other symbol of his love for the kahal and for Israel and for the vehicle of his revelation uh, than the symbolism of married love. In the due course of time, God becomes man. In other words, the bridegroom becomes a man. But did our Lord ever call himself the bridegroom? Yes, he did. And he did it in such a very natural way that the people were not at all astounded when they heard him, because they knew the background of God being related to there are people as the bridegroom one of the occasions in which our blessed lord spoke of himself that way was when a question was hurled at him as to why his disciples did not fast whereas the disciples of john the baptist did fast the answer of our lord was can you expect the men of the bridegroom's company to go fasting when the bridegroom is still with them? And he went on to say that the bridegroom would be taken away. John the Baptist called himself the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, a kind of best man. I think there's beautiful mystery hidden somewhere in the marriage feast of Canaan. Our Lord began his public life by assisting at that marriage feast to typify that his relationship with his church would be exactly like the relationship unfolded in the Old Testament. And when, therefore, the old Kahal of Israel became the new Kahal, or the church, or the new Israel through redemption and Pentecost, we had the continuation of this symbolism. Eve was the continuation of the body of man. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. What is the church? The church in the New Testament is described as the new Eve because the continuation of the new Adam, Christ. Everywhere there's the idea of espousals, body, oneness but we must get first things first remember that the union of our Lord and the church is not like a human marriage rather a human marriage is like the union of our Lord and the church when therefore the bridegroom and bride stand at the altar and we read to them the marriage ceremony we are informing them. You, the bridegroom, stand for Christ. And you, the bride, stand for the church. That is the mysterious grace that is conferred upon you. How beautiful marriage becomes. Scripture also goes on to tell us that just as Christ is the head of the church... So man is the head of a woman. Perhaps I should have put that the other way around. Suppose I just said that man is the head of woman. Uh, Very often when women read that passage in Scripture, they do not like it. But they should read what follows, that man is the head of a woman in exactly the same way that Christ is the head of the church. Now, how was our Lord the head of the church, the head of his bride? Well, he was the head by dying and sacrificing himself and pouring out his blood. The headship was based upon self-forgetfulness for the sake of the beloved. Now, how is the wife related to the husband? Well, she is related to the husband in the same way that the church is related to our blessed Lord. And as the husband is to sacrifice himself for the wife, so too the wife, like the church, is to be related to her husband. Just as The church to our Lord through love, service, devotion, and striving for perfection. Perhaps one of the reasons why a woman's head must always be covered in church is to signify that man is the head of the woman as Christ is the head of the church. In other words, there is something over the head of a woman, namely her husband, as there is something over the church, the head of the church, namely Christ himself. That is not superiority. That is sacrifice. There's another conclusion to be drawn too. And here we come to the supernatural, divine reason why the marriage of baptized persons is unbreakable. It is because they symbolize the unbreakable eternal union of our Lord and the Church. When the Son of God came to this earth and took upon himself a human nature, which flowered into his mystical body, the Church, he did not take it for three years, for thirty-three but for all eternity, so too, when a husband takes a wife, he takes that wife as Christ took the church. He takes that wife until death does him part. And in order to symbolize that enduring union of the espousals of Christ and his church, they are to love one another Until death, separate them. Hidden in this very lovely description of the symbolism of marriage is also the fact that there can be only one church. Remember that in the scripture, the church is the bride of Christ. Do you think our Lord could have many brides, many spouses? That would be spiritual adultery, would it not? He does not have 200 varieties of spouses or churches. There is one spouse. There is one church. And that union continues forever. That, then, is the reason why the marriage of husband and wife
0: is unbreakable in the sacramental order.
1: Here is a little theoretical problem, and sometimes not so theoretical, which helps bring out this truth. Just suppose that John and Mary were married at an nuptial Mass, and they went to the church door, when they got there, they separated. And they never saw one another again. Could that marriage be dissolved? Yes, under certain conditions, it could be dissolved. Uh, that is called a marriage rotum non consummatum. That is to say, it is a marriage that was ratified in the church, but it was never consummated by union of two and one flesh. Now, why could that be dissolved under certain conditions? Simply because... The union of a husband and wife in a marriage that is only ratified but not consummated is something like the union of the individual soul and Christ by grace. The individual soul very often is separated from Christ through sin. There can be a falling out of that union but where you have a marriage that is not only ratified but also consummated, there the symbolism is not the union of the individual soul and Christ, but the symbolism of the union of Christ and his spouse, the church, and those two can never be separated, and therefore their marriage is absolutely unbreakable. How beautiful marriage is in the church. Fidelity is an engagement with the future. And when that future is eternity, when the soul knows that it cannot be saved unless it is faithful to the spouse, it remains faithful, even in the midst of trial. As God's love is never withdrawn from his church, so too the love of husband and wife are never withdrawn one from another. It is made in the full consciousness that their love is a proclamation to the world of another marriage, the marriage that gives us joy and happiness, the beautiful union of Christ and his bride,
0: the Church. Hello, Rady Maria family. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen was a master communicator with an unforgettable voice and ability to communicate the message of Christianity to all peoples. He was a Catholic priest with a tremendous knowledge of Catholic theology. We've been blessed to share his recordings through the generosity of our good friends at fultonsheen.com. I would ask you to visit their website to download hundreds of MP3 talks by the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please visit them at www.fultonsheen.com and there you can enjoy the voice of the master preacher of Christ who touched the lives of millions worldwide with his warmth, wisdom, and humor. So please visit fultonsheen.com to start enjoying your own collection of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen recordings. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, our hour has come to an end, and I hope that you've enjoyed these reflections and, um, You know, it is a blessing to learn our faith. Um, You know, a lot of us, uh, once we're done our catechism lessons in grade school or our confirmation class, uh, that seems to be it. And it's nice to pick up the books uh, once again and to relearn our faith. Um, And, of course, we are blessed to have uh, good friends at Fultonsheen.com share with us these quality audio recordings. And so, until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.